because the increasingly dualistic nature of Italy's labor market is what uh, is our inheritance, and it's a bad inheritance. Welcome to The Work Goes On, a podcast from the Industrial Relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder, the Joseph Douglas Green 1895 Professor of Economics at Princeton University. In this podcast series of conversations with leading thinkers and practitioners, we are creating an oral history of an entire generation of industrial relations experts and labor economists whose contributions to their fields have been absolutely extraordinary. Our guest today is Bruno Contini, Professor of Econometrics Emeritus at the University of Torino. Bruno is famous for his work in labor economics and especially for his work on the informal sector and the labor market of Italy. Bruno, welcome to The Work Goes On. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Pleasure to have you. I know you're a little time zone different from me. Let's begin the discussion by talking about your background. Where did you grow up? Uh, my family is originally from Ferrara, an old and famous Jewish community of northern Italy. We are not the Bassanis Finzi Contini, although they existed, and we are somewhat related. My father was a lawyer, anti-fascist, and Zionist. My mother, a good pianist. In 1938, the racist laws against the Jews were enacted by the fascist regime. Jewish professionals were not allowed to work, public servants to keep their jobs. Children could not attend public schools. My family decided to emigrate to Palestine, while in the meantime, my brother Leo was born. But my father was imprisoned by the regime in 1939 and sent to confinement in the Adriatic Islands and then to a small village in the mountains, Apennine Mountains. The family was allowed to reach him in 1941. The villagers were pleasant people. Life in the mountain village was good for us children. Our father, free from professional duties, had all the time to be with us. One of my best friends was Bruno San Martino, who many of you probably know. He became a famous world wrestling champion <laughs> for many years after his family migrated to Pittsburgh. <laughs> the world wrestling champion. <laughs> During confinement, my father could not work as a lawyer. He then decided to rent a small piece of land where he raised wheat and potatoes. My parents were very worried as most of the family was in northern Italy, where the Germans had begun to deport Jews in 1943. Many of the close relatives reached Switzerland, but a few were captured and sent to German lagers. After the fall of the Mussolini regime, the family was free and reached Naples in December 1944, rescued by Palestinian soldiers of the British Army, who gathered the Jews of southern Italy, escaped from the German deportations. In Naples, my father went back to work for the Allied courts and began a political life in the new free Italy. Unfortunately, he died 
at the age of 38 from an illness that could not be treated at the time. My mother was offered a job in Rome as a social worker for a Jewish organization, and we moved to Rome in 1945. Where where did you go to high school? I, I went to high school in Rome, but then at the end of my high school, my Rome high school, I went to San Francisco with the American Field Service, where I lived with a wonderful family and graduated from Washington High School in 1955. You know, another uh, another a man about your age, I would guess, Reuben Gronau has. I did a podcast with him. He was born in the British of the in the in Palestine in the British Mandate and had had my his parents had migrated there. One of them was a Zionist, and they had left mm-hmm. a little earlier. In other words, they escaped uh, before. Uh, they had difficulties uh, in, in, uh, in, I think it was Germany. I have to ask you a little bit about this. So what are your memories of the way that anti-Semitism worked in Italy? Uh, my, my mother had moved to Milano. And once back in Italy, I took a job in the accounting office of a large firm in order to help the meager finances of the family. At the t- same time, I enrolled at Bocconi University where I could not attend classes except for courses in statistics. My grades were, therefore, only fair. In 1959, I wrote a thesis on the Italian coal market using confluential analysis and antecedent of regression methods. I had become interested in operations research and hoped to attend graduate studies instead of my far from excellent university record. <laughs> I was quite fortunate because Franco Modigliani, still at Carnegie Tech, liked my thesis and suggested to give me a chance at GSIA, the graduate school. I wanted to ask you how you ended up. I know you got your PhD from what was then Carnegie Institute of Technology, now, of course, Carnegie Mellon. But I wondered whether it must have been that connection with Franco Modigliani, uh, an Italian also, and I guess also Jewish, who must have escaped from Italy before an earlier time. So he was the one who connected you with Carnegie Tech. Indeed, I was quite fortunate because uh, Franco Modigliani liked my thesis and suggested to give me a chance at GSIA where no Italian students had ever attended. (laughs) Franco had migrated in the United States in 1939 after the racial laws. His support was big help. My wife and I, just married, inherited the Modigliani's Hydabed, <laughs> where probably my eldest daughter was conceived. <laughs> At that time, I was still thinking of operation research as my uh, future major, as was not particularly interested in economics per se. I took some basic courses with Sired and Cal Cohen, enjoyed Herbert Simon, who gave me a very meager B. <laughs> I loved uh, Bill Cooper's courses in linear programming, but it was Jack Muth who changed my perspective. I was his research assistant at the time of his rational expectations, which I did not understand then. But he was extremely helpful in many respects taught me a lot of statistics and basic econometrics, and we became good friends. I convinced him to try skiing 
instead of drinking and smoking. <laughs> and that changed his life. His weekends became longer and longer. <laughs> he put on a nice suntan and perhaps skiing improved his bad life habits. This is Dick Muth. How did you come to meet him? How, How did you meet him? In class? Yeah, sure. Well, you, you went through a list of extremely famous people in their day who were at Carnegie Tech. Yeah. Uh, yes. And then what happened? So you finished at Carnegie. Who did you work with? Well, did you work with Muth? I w well, actually, I worked with Muth at the beginning. But then, uh, as you probably know, Jack had to leave Carnegie uh, and go elsewhere because there was a very funny story about his being a PhD student at Carnegie, never awarded a PhD because he refused to take an examination in a foreign language, <laughs> although he knew German very well. So what happened is that a few of, of his friends, including myself, told him, why don't you write a nice letter in German uh, to the dean and see if it works? And it did work, because at that point, they decided they had to award him the, the PhD. Uh, but then, unfortunately, uh, Jack was not uh, particularly happy at Carnegie, and he moved to a west uh, to, to to the Midwest and uh, finished his career there. So, actually, my thesis, which I I thought I would I I would write under the supervision of Jack, which I changed a supervisor. A supervisor and I did it with uh, Davis, Otto Davis, a public finance professor. When I took the PhD qualifiers at Carnegie, the company of candidates were really very challenging. Williamson, Ollie Williamson, Dale Mortensen, Roger Sherman, and one year later, Prescott, whom I liked mainly as a great football player. <laughs> Coffee time was already exciting. Lucas, Bob Lucas, had joined GSIA and was about to apply Muth's expectations in his monetary macro models. Herb Simon was all against it. Alan Meltzer was so-and-so. Uh, he wasn't too sure. At the, t at the time, you know, the, the, the coffee lounge, we talked with many people. Dick Sired and Jim March had teamed up with Maury de Groot a renowned Bayesian statistician, and discussed empirically sound behavioral models of organizations. Bill Cooper and his lifetime author, Charles, were exchanging ideas on programming with multiple objectives. I became attracted by the idea and later made it the object of my doctoral dissertation. So I started on that, uh, but... In, uh, in the mid-60s, uh, we had to go back to Italy because my mother-in-law was seriously ill. I worked for almost two years at Olivetti Electronics during applied operations research. Then we were back in Pittsburgh, where I finished and defended my thesis. Then I was hired by Tom Marshak at UC Berkeley to teach organizations 
a la Carnegie Tech. Berkeley was full of excellent theorists, from De Brew to Dan McFadden, uh, George Akerlof, and others too. My thesis, bargaining with multiple objectives, was theoretical and not bad, which was accepted by Econometrica. I continued to work on theory with modest success. Multiple objectives made it natural to write also a paper on general equilibrium with public goods. In 1965, the business school had had, uh, um, created a laboratory for experimental work with Hoggett and Balderson being the first ones to make use of it. I was getting tired of theory also because my math was not good enough and decided to try something experimental. And I did a, an experiment on a duopoly that turned out successful. And uh, it was published by the American Economic Review. You know, Bruno, I, I want to interrupt because uh, that's the first paper of yours that I ever read. Uh, the paper in the American Economic Review, which was, a, a, I guess, a combination of bargaining and, and, and experimental work. What, what, what did you find in that paper? Basically, the experiment uh, suggested that uh, people acted as uh, true duopolists uh, in the sense of Cournot. And uh, that was uh, interesting because... Uh, uh, this was could be seen experimentally and could be seen the result. It wasn't obvious at all. You know, that must have been one of the very earliest papers in using experiments that was published. Well, actually, the editor, I think he was Gurley, perhaps. Perhaps. The editor of the American Economic yeah, Review. Jack Gurley. Told me that it was the first paper ever published in experimental economics in the American Economic Review. I think that's probably right. Uh, mm. It was the, 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 Most of the journals were not very sympathetic early on to no. experimental work. So you were quite a pioneer. But how long were you at Berkeley? I was there uh, between 65 and 68. And then uh, we had to go back to Italy for a couple of years. And I was back in 1967 and uh, left Berkeley in 1969. Uh, I must say that at that point, it was clear that I would not become a full-fledged economist. My knowledge of macroeconomics uh, and monetary theory did not go much beyond the level of a good textbook. (laughs) Some people would say that was a good good thing for you. (laughs) In 1967, my friend and colleague, Bart Maguire received a grant to estimate the damages of the 1966 floods in Oregon and Northern California and asked me to join him on the economics of natural disasters. Our work was ma- made a good impression at Resources for the Future. At that time, I was about to return to Italy and Resources for the Future proposed me a study on the flood damages of the Po River in northern Italy. While in Berkeley, I had become a friend of an Italian labor sociologist, Paci, and suggested to team up 
for an empirical study aimed at estimating flood damage in the Po region and suggesting new measures of land use for agricultural development. This would require a good deal of sociological imagination in order to have the local farmers cooperate. Two years later, we wrote a book that made a good impression on the Italian economy. The project made a turning point in my life, thanks to Pachi, who, as he was a labor, a labor sociologist, but then labor economics was to become my daily soup for many years to come. In 1971, I joined the University of Torino to teach econometrics. Years later, I discovered that the Italian Social Security Administration had complete microdata of worker histories matched to their employers as well as to the self-employed. For many years since, and throughout the 80s, I was after the Social Security Administration in order to convince them of the importance of using their micro data for policy-oriented research. But it was a very long and difficult find to surmount legislative and administrative obstacles to win the battle. Not until the mid-80s was the Laboratorio able to release the Work Histories Italian Panel, WIP for short, a 1 to 90 random sample of individual work histories matched with their employers. In dealing with the Social Security Administration, we subscribed to the policy of free releasing the data to research institutions and individual researchers. This made a big difference with all other countries where access was more complicated, if not precluded. Mm -hmm. In addition, WIP, the, our panel, was more informative than other existing databases. Complete work histories from first hire to labor market exit, data salaries, employing firms, work interruptions, job changes due to the modernity leaves, illness, return to school, draft, sabbaticals, and also moved into self-employment. As of today, let me say, uh, over 50 papers of researchers from different countries have been published with WIP data. Now, Bruno, you, th this, this enterprise that you just described uh, yes. was a part of, I understand you started what you just called the Laboratorio. What is it? The Laboratorio was founded. I was at the time also with the uh, University of Torino, but also at the Collegio Carlo Alberto. Ricardo, my co-author, Riccardo Revelli, uh, died very young in 2000. And so we decided to put together a group called Laboratorio Revelli for Employment Studies in honor of his uh, work. Our first study on the WIP data was on job and worker flows, essentially for the understanding of labor market dynamics. My colleague and friend Revelli and I had presented the results in a conference in Torino with the participation of the very few who were moving the same direction. In first place, Steve Davis and John Haltiwanger 
as well as people from Statistics Canada and Norway. Other who attended were from France, Germany, Holland, Israel, but they did not have, have access to the data yet. My research became so redirected towards the understanding of Italy's poor performance versus that of all the main countries. Slower growth, negative labor productivity, investment crisis, low labor participation, increasing dualistic nature of the labor market. And the characteristics of those who were uh, sacked from the from the firms and uh, uh, did not ever return to the labor market were quite different from other workers. Lower education, very low salaries, employed in the service industries, less mobile, unable to find alternative jobs, also when de labor demand was favorable. At that time, I was hoping to discuss with Alan Kruger because he had written a paper on uh, the fact that once, uh, uh, once long-term unemployed people would never return to the labor market. In uh, 2019, I did a joint paper with a German economist and a, uh, and a Spanish economist aimed at co co comparing long-time non-employment in Italy, Germany, and Spain. Many features of them were similar to the Italian ones. The ratio of long-term unemployed to overall employment were not surprisingly higher in Italy and Spain compared to Germany. Ten years ago, a new important development took place within, with a regional epidemiological service. The matching of, of the data of WIP with histories of work accidents and illnesses, which provided a new instrument of policy analysis. Here, two new lines of collaboration were established with the Statistical Institute and the Ministry of Public Health. Now, I think that several policy conclusions valid for Italy can be drawn from the study of long-term non-employment. As I said, the average uh, length of non-employment spells was sometimes of 10, 15 years. Uh, many of the workers who were dropouts from the regular labor market presumably joined the irregular economy, irregularly by Italian standards. Actually, I think that many of them would be legal in more European countries where regulation is less invasive and or where these jobs may also be exempt from social security contributions. This is the case for the majority of low-pay, often part-time, temporary jobs in the service sectors. Waiters, janitors, salespeople, domestic helpers, and caregivers. A less restrictive legislation would reduce the incentive to join the regular economy, while it might also have a mitigating impact on early exit and a drastic reduction of the excessive number of contract typologies would dissipate the legislative confusion and reduce the number of litigations as well as their associated transaction costs. More recently, actually my last attempt 
to write a paper as a cost-effectiveness analysis of the incentives to youth employment, which is still underway. The incentives indicate that a three-year 50% exemption of Social Security contributions from the European community for the new male hires would save a substantial number of workers from dropping out of employment in a 10-year window. Uh, now, it turned out, and this is very unfortunate, that the number of additional people saved from becoming long-term non-employed is very low. Uh, and uh, the cost of this policy is quite high. So we're not yet ready to a full evaluation. And of course, also a lot of interesting work for a young generation of economists would be to study and the social implications of the long-term non-employment that we find in by means of our data. I've been working very hard on this, but I'm not too convinced that the paper is uh, convincing. We're coming to the end of our podcast. You've been very helpful in describing exactly the topics that I had wanted to ask you about, including this uh, labor force that's secondary, really, to the primary labor force in Italy and other places that happens as well. Of course, not to the same extent, perhaps. And, and also yes. your development of uh, new data sources in labor economics. There is one last thing I'd like to ask you. you. You've been in Italy for a very long time, observed the Italian economy over a very long time. What, let me ask you this. How, how do you think it has evolved uh, it on the whole compared to you know, if you think back to the beginning of time, yeah, obviously a very difficult time in the 1930s. But since that time, there have been clearly some very helpful developments and some not so helpful. What's, 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 your, what's your overall assessment? The overall assessment is that the Italian economy fared quite well throughout the 80s and early, early 90s. But then uh, the Italian economy became less pervasive and uh, Italy accepted the advice of the European community to make the, uh, the labor market much more flexible. So what happened is that the policies uh, of the European community uh, increased the dualistic nature of the Italian labor market and uh, made it more difficult to accumulate human capital. And that is a, a, a very bad, very bad accomplishment because Italy continued, the, Italy, the Italian economy continued to fall vis-a-vis the other European countries, both in terms of growth and also in terms of uh, labor market uh, development and uh, labor market uh, success. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. That's a, that's a little depressing. So the increasingly dualistic nature of Italy's labor market is what uh, is our inheritance, and it's a bad inheritance. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Bruno. Our guest today has been Bruno Contini, Professor of Econometrics Emeritus at the University of Torino. Please join us again 
for the next episode of The Work Goes On, an oral history of industrial relations and labor economics from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. I'm your host, Orly Ashenfelder. Thanks for listening. The Work Goes On is a production from the industrial relations section at Princeton University. For more information on our people, research, events, and programming, visit our website, irs.princeton.edu.